0: Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. If I were to say the word pet, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? A dog? a cat. Indeed, most people in America have a dog or a cat in the home. If I asked you to name a few other common pets, one might say parakeet, hamster, guinea pig, or rabbit. And if I asked you to name some exotic pets, you might say snake, lizard, iguana, turtle, or maybe a parrot. Well, I did grow up with dogs and cats as a kid in Central Africa. But I must say the previous list of exotic animals doesn't hold a candle to the stuff we got to raise. This may seem counterintuitive as the Congolese had very few pets. Animals served essentially one purpose, food. Animals in the forest were trapped or shot to eat. The goats, chickens, ducks, sheep, and pigs that they might raise were never pets. Rather, they were a future meal. The Congolese in general did not grow attached to any animal, even those that had cats or dogs. And these were very few and far between. Again, these animals were there to serve a purpose. One almost never saw affection being given to a dog. Rather, in many cases, a dog was to be a hunter, as in a Basenji dog. They don't bark, but are excellent hunting dogs. And cats... Well, they were there just to keep the rats out of the corn bin. So back in the 1960s and 70s, occasionally a Congolese would show up at our door with a live animal for sale. Usually it was a baby that they had caught, or maybe it was injured, and they felt they could get more money from us with it alive than they could get selling it for meat, even though meat was in short supply. I've seen helped care for or personally had the following list of pets as a kid in Congo. Dog, cat, guinea pig, rabbits, African gray parrot, falcon, owl, hawk, antelope, civet cat, genetic cat, monkey, mongoose, coney, otherwise known as a tree hyrax, hornbill, or how about a pangolin? Do you know what that is? I'll explain later in the episode. Also, we had a poto. These little sloths were so cuddly and fun. That's P-O-T-T-O. Look it up. And another unique pet was the elephant shrew, though I didn't have one. Cute little guys about the size of a small cat with a long nose that they could move around, but not pick stuff up with like a real elephant. It eats centipedes and bugs. So as you have heard in this intro... Growing up in Congo gave us so much exposure to unique and exotic animals and birds that we got to raise as pets. Since this episode is about Congo exotic animals that we had as pets, the most identifiable to you the listener is probably the African gray parrot. There are actually two kinds, the Congo African gray and the Timnay African gray. The Congos have bright red tails and are a bit meaner, while the Timnays have a dull red tail and are a bit more docile. Yet they are rated the best mimickers in the world as they can learn phrases and mimic people with such perfect accents and voice tonation. It was almost scary. To wit, one parrot owner would often go outside and call for the yard boy to come to do a chore. Andre, yakanandako, Andrew, come to the house. Well, over time, their parrot picked that up. Sure enough, the lady of the house would be inside doing something. The parrot outside on its cage would yell, "André, Yakanandako! And the yard boy would come running to the door to await instructions for his next task. It was rather awkward when he realized the parrot had beckoned him to the house and not the matron of the house. Well, they say to not use bad words, cuss or swear around a parrot, as it'll pick those words up. Wise counsel indeed. Yet there might be something even worse than that for a parrot to learn. Here's an example, and I'll let you decide between the two. In the late 1970s, we lived in a duplex. Our neighbors were a nice young couple, Brad and Ruth. Well, Ruth got pregnant with their first child. Unfortunately, she suffered from horrible morning sickness. So every morning, poor Ruth would be in the bathroom worshiping the porcelain idol, throwing up and having dry heaves with her morning sickness. Well, the parrot's cage was outside the bathroom window and the window was screen, not glass. So sure enough, you guessed it, the parrot picked that up. Fast forward about six years. I went on a trip to another mission station. While there, we were visiting some folks And suddenly I hear, I turned to the person and said, say, that must be Brad and Ruth's parrot, right? Well, indeed it was. Brad and Ruth had returned to the U.S. and had given it to someone else to take care of. And for the rest of its life, which could be 30 plus years, whoever was taking care of that parrot was reminded every day of Ruth's first trimester of morning sickness. Can you imagine serving dinner to guests and having that parrot outside making that horrible sound, it ruined dinner for sure. So, worse than it learning cuss words? You decide. Birds of prey were often purchased from the Congolese to be pets. Usually they were injured or babies. I remember one falcon we had in junior high. We splinted its broken wing and fed it lizards and birds. After a few weeks, its wing healed and we would let it fly. Eventually it would fly up to 50 yards and then one day it just flew away. It was initially sad, but then we realized it was meant to be free. So I was proud of our crude surgical techniques and feeding it until it ultimately could be on its own. I had several owls over the years. The Africans were very scared of owls as they looked strange with those huge eyes, but more so since owls flew at night. The Africans couldn't understand that and were very superstitious of owls. Anyways, Those bundles of feathers with a huge beak and feet sticking out were a lot of fun, but lots of work. Daily, we had to go and catch stuff for the owl to eat. There was no pet store to buy owl food at. This meant each evening we'd go around the various buildings that had exterior lights where little gecko lizards would hang out to catch bugs, and we would knock them down with sticks so we could feed the owl. Or we would shoot rats in the chicken coop to feed it. Or we would shoot lizards during the day as well. Paul Noren, who was born and raised in Congo and has worked virtually his entire life in Africa, shares a few stories about raising various birds of prey.
1: We had uh, raised one owl from time it was really quite small to and I wanted to make that one into like, like a falcon and it, and it got to the point where yeah, I would walk in the room and put my arm out and he'd fly right to my hand. And the owls were good because you could raise them until they flew around and then you just put them out at night and next thing you knew they'd be in the trees around your house at night and eventually they'd just go further and further afield and they they were fine but they're hard to feed once again because they're taking all kinds of lizards and stuff like that and I remember one of them that we had at the dorm and we'd let it go and then one day we're walking up the path and we see it come down and attack something and it was a corn cob (laughs) He's, he's he's landed on this corn cob he's got his foot on it you know like I've killed it and he starts pecking at it and realizes this, this isn't going to do anything. Okay. <laughs> just. <laughs> and we thought, how does this guy survive? But he did. He was, he was around for a long time. He survived. I had a falcon that I found it on the road. I didn't know if it was diseased or what had happened to it. I picked it up and took it and put it in a cage, fed it meat. So I had him for a while and said, hey, you're welcome to go anytime you're ready to fly here. And, you know, a couple of weeks, he flew away, and he's fine.
0: This next story about birds of prey doesn't involve pets directly, but in a way it does. We live in an area with a bird of prey called the black kite, or what we called the Congo hawk. These huge birds would circle and soar all day, looking for little chicks or ducklings to pick off in a village, or rodents, snakes, lizards, and other small animals to eat. Well, one day... One of us tossed a lizard up in the air as a hawk was circling overhead. With their incredible eyesight, the hawk was intrigued and started to circle over where we were, tossing that lizard up in the air. One toss more and the hawk swooped down and caught the lizard midair and took off. So that started what we called hawk shows. If we'd shot a bunch of lizards with our pellet gun one day, we'd see a hawk and toss a lizard up. Sure enough, it would come over and start to circle lower and lower. Then as all the other hawks in the area saw one hawk's specific behavior of circling and diving, they too would come to see what was of interest, hoping for food. Eventually we'd have 20 to 30 hawks circling our yard, often only 15 or 20 feet above the ground. Now these birds were huge. Their wingspans were often four feet or more. So to have lots of fun, The trick was to toss the lizard up in the air just low enough that even with a dive, the hawk just couldn't quite grab it as it swooped down before the lizard landed on the ground. Call it teasing, which it was, but eventually a bad throw would result in a hawk catching it or scooping it off the ground and off it went. And then four or five other hawks would be in hot pursuit. They were trying to get the hawk with the lizard to drop it so they could get it and eat it. So one day, one of our friends got the bright idea to tie some fishing line to a big lizard and throw that up as bait for the hawk show. The idea at the time seemed great. Have a hawk grab the lizard and after it takes off a ways, it'll have to drop the lizard since it's tied to the fishing line. Then toss the lizard again to watch the hawks swoop down. Remember, we were young kids and this was big fun. Unfortunately, the first hawk that caught the lizard in the air took off, and then when the slack in the line ran out, it didn't drop the lizard, but rather got its claws tangled in the line. So our scared friend with a huge hawk on the end of his line with powerful claws and beak literally reeled it in, then tried to grab the hawk so the line could be untangled and the bird released. That hawk was flapping around and trying to bite and claw everybody. And boy, was that scary trying to manhandle it. We finally got it untangled, and we got it released, fortunately. Needless to say, that was the last time we put a string on a lizard. I must bookend this story about the birds of prey, about how we dealt with the food supply chain. As mentioned, we'd shoot or catch lizards, geckos, and rats, and sometimes even birds, to feed our pet owl or hawk. Often, we'd shoot a bunch of lizards, some 12 to 18 inches long with our pellet gun. Since the owl couldn't eat them all in one day, we would need to store them for the future. Well, we had a kerosene fridge that was very small, so it was always full. There was, however, a small tray under the freezer, so we'd bag these dead lizards and put them in the tray or maybe even the crisper drawer. Very few people I know would let their kids store dead lizards in their fridge next to the leftover casserole, but Mom did. I knew she wasn't thrilled about it, but she knew it was important to us boys. Mom was really a good sport in this regard. Thanks, Mom. Other birds we had as pets were hornbills. Paul Norrin raised several kinds, and I've asked him to share his stories.
1: There's a number of different species of hornbills in, in the Ubanga, I think seven or eight, maybe even. There's a couple that are black and white that are pretty good size. One of them's a really big one. I don't know how we got a hold of this thing. We we got it as a, a little guy. We were at the dorm. He and I worked with that one a lot. And it was uh, mostly a fruit eater. The thing tamed down, it knew us really well. It turns out that hornbills become like part of a family and and they don't want other people to be around. But at the Academy, there were a lot of family. So it got to know a lot of the kids. They go sit up on the top of the dorm roof. And we'd go out in the middle of the yard there and stick an arm out and have a banana. And boy, he'd come flying down and land on your arm. They're powerful flyers, but they're not graceful. And so when he landed, it would be like a crash landing on your arm every time. You know, he'd hit you and bend way over and his tail would go up like he was going to fall off. And, you know, then he'd get his balance. And there were a couple of times when we stood there and we had one arm out and then we put the other one out. And he starts coming like this way and then that way. And you didn't, didn't know which arm to land on and just crash into you. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. But he was fairly easy to feed because he was eating fruit all the time give him a big chunk of banana and he'd try to swallow the whole section of banana at one time and get it stuck in his throat and he'd stick his neck way up in the air and he'd grab his throat and push the banana down, you know, and then he was happy. So this guy, he just adored us and he would want to be with me and David a lot. He'd like to sit on our laps and he'd sit there and he'd just look up at you and he'd just look at you with these, and these big eyelashes that they have. He'd just be looking at you like, I just love you, you know? And then he'd start playing with your buttons on your shirt with his great big beak. Hornbills have big beaks. There's all these different kinds. They're the one kind, there's a couple that we call double beakers. And what they have is a normal beak. And then they got this great big thing on top of their beak that, like a horn that sticks up there. And the males have that. And then I've had two other species of hornbill too. The, the Molombe is one that I, I also got at the dorm there. The maloma has a nice long tail. It's black and white with white spots on the tips of its wings. And then on its tail, it's got graduated tail length feathers so that the the center ones are nearly like 18 inches long. And then the the closest ones on the outside edges are maybe only about seven or eight. And then they get longer until they taper down. And they swoop through the woods. Uh, Those guys, they live down in the forest. They don't go up above. They're swooping between branches down low and eating insects. And especially where monkeys start to run and get upset about something and they bounce around, then insects come shooting off of those branches, having been disturbed. I've seen two or three of these Molombes. This is the white-crested hornbill. And then you just see these, the the monkeys are gone, things are calming down, and you see these things swooping through, shoom, shoom, just back and forth, catching the insects that were still flying around before they, they lit somewhere. He was a hard one to feed. He ate oodles of insects. I mean, grasshoppers, uh, big ones, little ones, cockroaches, anything we could find that that was an insect, he would eat it. And toads. The thing is, he knew that toads were poisonous somehow, because you give him a toad and he'd kill the thing basically. And then he would rub it in the ground. He would turn it and rub the thing in the ground and rub it in the ground and rub it in the ground and turn it and rub it in the dirt. And and what he was doing is he was rubbing off all the poison that comes out of the glands of a toad. And then when the thing was completely rubbed out and all softened up from being smashed around, run through its beak back and forth. Then he would just tip it up and swallow the whole thing, a whole toad. And you think, how in the world? Obviously, he couldn't taste it, but it, (laughs) it just went down. We are shooting lizards and geckos and catching toads. And, you know, if we got a snake, whatever, we just fed it to this Molombi and he ate it.
0: My first pet I got when I was five, it was a cat. I named her Moko, which means the number one in Lingala. But my second pet I got when I was five was a monkey. I named it Mibale, which means number two. It was a Smith's white-nosed genon. I raised it from a baby. That was really cool. I loved that little guy and he loved me. We'd let it run around the yard and up on the roof and in the trees during the day. I'd call it and it would come to me and hang out on my shoulder or head. And at night we'd put him in a box to sleep. What little kid wouldn't have a blast with a pet monkey? I remember while we were sitting on our porch one late afternoon and our family was eating popcorn. Mibali heard us, so sure enough, pitter-patter, he came down the roof of our house. He leaned over the edge of the roof to see us on the porch. Suddenly, he launched himself at us and landed smack dab in the middle of the popcorn bowl. Popcorn flew everywhere. And then he runs around, grabbing as many kernels as he could, and he scoots off. Fun times indeed. Unfortunately, after one year, we moved back to the U.S. and we gave him to someone else. Unfortunately, the caretaker hadn't spent much time with it, and Mibali was mean and would often bite. Like with any wild animal that becomes a pet, lots of time and affection are needed. It was sad to see my former best friend like that. Monkeys were rather common pets with many people in Congo. There were other bigger monkeys, like the putty-nosed genod, we called them lubies, and they tended to be harder to tame and were a bit meaner in my experience. Others had the majestic colobus big black and white monkeys, and they were very pretty. But again, if one didn't spend time with them, they weren't that friendly. Living in the tropics, snakes were often a concern, as green mambas, black mambas, Egyptian cobras, spitting cobras, and gabon vipers were in the area. So a few folks kept a pet mongoose in their home as a snake deterrent. If you've read the book or seen the movie Ricky Tiki Tavi by Rudyard Kipling, you know what I mean mongooses are notoriously fast and fierce and can kill a green mamba or cobra without getting bit. Mongooses look sort of like a weasel and were fun pets, and they were a protection against poisonous snakes to boot. Another pet we had was a coney, or sometimes referred to as a tree hyrax or rock hyrax. These guys were fun to have and could climb everything. Often at night, we'd hear wild conies calling out in the forest as they were pretty loud. Paul Norn had a pet tree hyrax and describes raising one from a baby.
1: The ones that we call, referred to as conies up in the, in the Ubangi, the, you know, the tropical part of Congo there is the, uh, the tree hyrax. They get to be about the size of a rabbit. They're gray. Their closest living relative is the elephant, which seems completely weird, but their structures and so forth indicate that. And, they uh, they can climb almost anything and they climb up in the trees and eat the leaves that they want and they're they're going up and down and they scream at night so even now like at local right across the road from the house there there's a couple out there that they just they scream like bloody murder i mean it if you're not used to this sound it could really scare you when you're used to the sound it's like okay reverberating noise in the jungle and i'm talking Really loud, wah! and it sort of echoes in the leaves of the trees. Almost, it's a kind of a, a, resounding scream. And then, and then they go in a crescendo. They start kind of low, wah! and then they get a little bit higher, wah! 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 wah, until about twenty times they hit to a point. you kind of go wah, ah! and they, they sort of crack your voice, and that's the end. He's <laughs> like, what are they doing? and whether it's true or not i don't know the the Congolese say that when they're doing that and their voice is going up they're actually coming down the tree i think that's probably not true but it's just as good an explanation as anybody else's and they have canine teeth too by the way which is kind of weird They look like a rodent like a rabbit but a rabbit with canines or something so that's kind of bizarre When, when we first got it then we were giving it milk and just put the milk down in a little bowl and and it would just and he would just drink that milk, and we had a little box for him, and and then he would uh, he'd go to sleep. But after after he drank the milk, then he would kind of jump around a little bit, kind of hop here and there, just just right kind of in place, and we'd just laugh at the poor thing. Then as he got a little bit older, he would do like flips. He'd get full, and then he'd start doing little flips there and not go very far. But And then he got to be the size of a rabbit, and he really took to Christina, our daughter, and would follow her around. But He wouldn't go like 100, 200 yards away with her, but he would follow her like just around the yard. And then he would eat leaves and flowers and stuff like that. But when we ate, he wanted to be there too. And he could climb anything. So he'd come straight up the table leg, reach out from under the table to the edge of the table, and then he'd get his hands up there. And they they have little short hands that remind you of uh, the hands of a person with the two of the knuckles cut off kind of, but they have fingerprints all over those hands. That are bare, and so that grabs any surface really well to get tactile um, tension there. And so he would just he'd come up onto the table. I'd put him back down. He'd be back. You know, one minute he'd be back up on the table again. So then I put him up on a curtain rod, and he'd go back and forth up there trying to figure out how to get down because he couldn't really come down on the curtains very well. But eventually he would, and so uh, he liked to be with us. As he got older, he just started eating grass and leaves around and had plenty of food to eat, and we let him out for a long time. Then when we left, we left him with someone else, and it was just kind of there at the mission and wandering here and there, and, and eventually it was just in the wild.
0: Besides the day-to-day responsibility of feeding and caring for the tree hyrax, Paul has an interesting story about the tree hyrax getting lost, then found.
1: One day we're, we're, we're all curious, what happened to the, where's the hyrax? have you seen the hyrax Christina couldn't find it she didn't know where it was and this was this thing followed her all over the place and so we started looking for it we're looking around outside we're walking back and forth in the house whatever nothing we can't find the hyrax i figured well i don't know it'll probably show up eventually but so then it was like two hours after this that we've given up looking for the hyrax i go to the refrigerator to get a drink of water and I open up the refrigerator and there's a hyrax in the refrigerator sitting on the shelf, just sitting there. And I'm wondering what in the world. And so I take him out and I put him down on the floor and he just sits there absolutely still for like the next 20, 30 minutes. He's just sitting there not doing anything. I said, hey, I found the hyrax in the refrigerator. Well, Eric wasn't helping. He was only like four years old at the time and he wasn't helping us look for it. Eric, do you know anything about the hyrax? And he said, yeah. He said, he looked like he was hot to me. So I put him in the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, and the poor thing, didn't, he didn't mess anything up. He's just sitting there like, what did I do to deserve this? I don't know. The lights are out and it's just dark and I'm cold. And, and then after about 20 minutes, he decided to get up and go about life. Like nothing had happened. But he had a cool thing. You always knew when to be careful around him because he did have these teeth that were really sharp. And so he liked to play, but there'd be times when something would happen. He'd get mad, and he had a little yellow stripe down the middle of his back. It was about two inches long. When he got mad, that opened up and became a circle. So he had this round circle on his back that was white. And then you'd go, "Uh "Oh, stay clear of him. (laughs) He's gonna come bite your toe for good." Then, then you knew there was something up. Something had perturbed him. But that was a that was a fun little critter to have around one of the many that we that we enjoyed
0: i'd mentioned the pangolin earlier these creatures are very interesting as they are mammals but they have scales the only scaled mammal in the world i believe they look like anteaters with scales they have a very long tail that can be used to wrap around its body as a protection when threatened it turns into a giant ball with nothing but scales facing its enemy They're fairly docile creatures and eat bugs and ants and worms. My third grade class bought one in 1970 and we kept it as a class pet. Poor guy didn't last too long though. I'm not sure if it was sick or malnourished or what. I do know of other folks that had pangolins and really enjoyed them as pets as they'd cling to one's arm and were friendly critters. Some of my pets weren't exotic per se. I had guinea pigs as a young boy. I also had rabbits and I had a chicken named he. He followed me around like a dog. He was awesome. He also laid eggs. Hmm. I also raised pigeons for a few years. I built them a little mud and stick hutch with a grass roof mounted up on poles so no wild animals could gain access to them. That was fun. In fact, that desire to raise pigeons carried over into adulthood. And in my 40s, I started raising and breeding homing pigeons in my backyard. Another fun pet was a genetic cat, pretty sleek cats that were fun to play with and hold. Several folks had them, or a civet cat, beautiful cats, beautiful pets. The elephant shrew was a very unique creature that made for a fun pet. They were the size of a small cat with a long nose that they could move around to search for ants, bugs, and other food. Paul Noren had one and shares his experience with a pet elephant shrew.
1: The elephant shrew, that was another unexpected little guy that came, came our way. Someone, it, they brought it to us and he was about the size of a big mouse. I mean, you know, a little bit bigger than that. It kind of looked like a, like a guinea pig that was tall and skinny. And he had this nose that was like an elephant's nose, but not quite long enough. That little nose to just go any direction, you know, up and down and north and south, whatever. So we got him, he was really tiny. We didn't know what to do with him. So we put some milk out for him. and. With with a nose like that, I don't think this thing can even nurse. And maybe maybe from its mother, uh, we didn't even try to give it an drop or anything like that. We just put a puddle of milk in front of it, and put its nose in it. And then he's like, "Oh yeah, great, okay." So he starts licking it up. And then he'd do the same thing as the rex did too. After, after he was full, he'd he do these little like shivers, be happy when he got full. But then he got bigger, and we took him outside and see what this thing eats, you know. And he'd be walking around. We'd walk with him, and he'd be probing with his nose into the grass, and, and his nose would go down into the ground, into the like topsoil stuff, and he'd be catching like centipedes and anything that he could find in the ground, he'd probing around and picking up stuff. And so we thought he was probably eating worms and stuff like that, too. But then as he got older, he was like, yeah, I don't need to be around people anymore. And we just let him wander around the, the yard, and beautiful little animal. Our main concern was that someone was just going to hack him with a machete and go eat him. Or our own cat might kill him, which is interesting because our cat normally knew what our animals were and wouldn't wouldn't bother them, with the exception of the parakeets that we had one time. But anyway, so then this thing would just walk around, and eventually we said, yeah, just let it just let it continue walking around. And he'd go further and further. He'd come back to the house and find a place to to sleep there on the porch a little bit, and then then he'd go away again, and and then eventually he never came back. So easy to get him back into the woods.
0: Well, I usually only had one exotic pet at a time. Paul was much more ambitious than I.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, at one time we had three, I think it was two kittens and two Jeanette cats and a palm civet and a mongoose and a, couple, and a monkey. And our cat was nursing all of them. And when we fed them at six o'clock in the evening, what a zoo. I mean it was just a circus these things were jumping around carrying on and all of them playing together and it's funny we put we put a bowl of milk out and they'd all go running for the bowl of milk and a monkey go over and just take the bowl of milk and pull it over to this side and start drinking it i mean (laughs) then they'd all be looking around Oh, where's the milk oh there it is over there
0: so looking back at my growing up years in congo i can truly say that i was exposed to raising many kinds of exotic animals and birds It was fun to try and rescue injured animals, raise baby birds, and devote time and effort to their lives, which in turn brought us fun and joy and friendship. Seeing our baby owl or falcon or whatever reach maturity and then fly off into the wild was a bit bittersweet. Sad to see them leave, but satisfying that they were free. And as Paul shared, most of his pets ultimately did go back to the wild. We both feel that our time and energy devoted to these unique pets benefited us both tremendously.
1: I think learning to take care of animals and to be exposed to a wide variety of animals gives people a sort of compassion for things that maybe they didn't have. Now, in this country, you can do that with puppies and and kittens and um, that kind of thing. I think it's a good learning experience for kids to be taking care of these things. And to be able to see your monkeys or whatever succeed and your, your goal too is to eventually let them go someplace if you, if you can, it's hard to do because they get too accustomed to people and they see you as the family. They don't want to go back into the woods. What, what, what would I go out there for? So you have to have a place where they can sort of get it, adapted to it more easily. The Jeanette cats were easy. We just let them run around wild until finally they were, really were wild. And the mongoose, oh, we had to take the mongoose quite a ways away when it got too big and say, Here you are, you, <laughs> you're on your own.
0: Most of our pets just simply never came back one day. And so, in many cases, we never knew if they survived in the
1: wild. I think I mentioned to you this one big monkey before we were married. Cheryl had this baby colobus monkey that grew pretty good size, and then she had to leave. I was finishing up school at, uh, in the States here at that point. She came back and then we got married and went back out. So she'd given the, the monkey away to these people that were running Mobutu Zoo, a Belgian couple. And they took the monkey as a kind of like a personal pet there too and let it run around the zoo compound. And it grew up and finally disappeared one day. So a couple of years later, Cheryl and I are back. We go out to the zoo and I see this call this monkey up in the top of the trees like 130 feet up there and there's two of them and this one is a big monkey and in two leaps that thing's right here I mean all the way down Whoom, whoom, right here on a sapling about 15 feet away and then he takes a leap and lands on one about five feet away and he's looking at Cheryl and we realize this is Dumbo and now he's like a 30 pound monkey with like six feet long with from tip of tail, able to jump like crazy. And he recognized Cheryl from way up there and he came down. But he looked at her for a while and she looked back and, you know, he barely glanced at the rest of us. He was just staring at her. And it was kind of like, OK, here I am. I know who you are. And meanwhile, his wife was up there in the trees going, you know, what are you doing down there anyway? So then he bounded up and was gone again. And we looked at that and said, what a success that was. I mean, that was really nice. And he'd gone away off into the woods from the zoo there and found a mate and brought her back. So that was that was really cool.
0: My love of pets, particularly birds of prey, has carried over into my adult life. Almost 30 years ago, I joined the Orange County Bird of Prey Center, a nonprofit organization, as a volunteer. We rescue all the injured hawks, falcons, owls, and other birds of prey in our county and we rehabilitate them, we educate the public about birds of prey and their place in the ecosystem, and we ultimately release them back into the wild. I'm proud to say we release over 90% of every bird that comes into our center, and we get over 100 per year. So as you can see, my exposure as a child to birds of prey has impacted me into adulthood in a tangible way. So when someone tells me they got a bearded dragon for their kid as a, quote, exotic pet, I simply shrug. Compared to all the pets I had or helped with in my growing up years, nobody I know will ever have the chance here in Southern California to have the variety and quantity of unique and exotic pets that I did as a child. Nor will they ever know the joy and satisfaction of raising a bird or animal into adulthood until it ultimately returns to the wild and you can't put a price tag on that. I know Paul has been enriched by all these animals he's cared for over the years. Paul and his family have done so much to help so many animals and birds in Congo, thus allowing them to live as they were intended, which was in the wild. Good job, Paul. I also want to give a big thank you to Paul Noren for sharing his great stories of all the various animals and birds he raised to enrich us all. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, life stories by Congo Kid podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, AKA Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninga Nangai, Tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.